0: Uh, There is an outline of the talk in the bulletin. There are transcripts uh, also in the foyer and there are Bibles there if you want to follow along. Let's ask God to help us uh, with his word. Our Heavenly Father, you say your word is given to help us learn about and trust Jesus as our Saviour. And that through its teaching, uh, rebuke, correction and training, we can be equipped to live the lives of his followers. We pray now that your word would do its work in our lives. Uh, We would learn more about Jesus and grow in our trust in him and we would be equipped uh, to live as his followers. Give us understanding, we pray, and help me to speak your word faithfully and clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Many in our world long for justice that things would be put right, that the cruel and the proud, the liars and the deceivers would not get away with it, wouldn't prosper at the expense of ripping off and putting down others, especially the most vulnerable. This yearning for justice is a human longing. And we can see people in the scriptures taking up that yearning for justice with God. Uh, Think of Job longing for vindication and crying out, Why does the Almighty not set times for judgment? Why must those who know him look in vain for such days? Or the psalmist, Psalm 44, saying, Awake, Lord, why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and depression? Or the prophet Habakkuk saying, How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Even the saints under the altar in Revelation 6 cry out, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge their blood? Believers long for justice. And believers take their complaint to God. Their cry is an expression of their trust in God. But that's not the case with the people of Malachi's day, who we are told are wearing God out, wearing out his patience with their complaining, not to God, they are complaining to each other about God. Turning that longing, into a complaint about God, into a reason to not trust or honour him. They say, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he's pleased with them, or where is the God of justice? Hear that complaint? Firstly, they're saying that God welcomes and favours those who do wrong, and, and that's more than complaining that the wicked are prospering. It's claiming that God's indifferent to how people live; that God prospers evildoers. That's the reason for their success. And secondly, they're saying that either God is uninvolved and absent or he's not concerned with justice. Where's the God of justice? That is, they're saying God cannot be the God that he says he is righteous and just. What prompted their complaint? Well, in Malachi's day, as much as we can judge the situation from Malachi and Ezra and Nehemiah, those who had returned from Babylon were still doing it tough. They were still ruled by the Persians, paying taxes to a foreign power. And later in the chapter, verse 11, we see that their crops appear to be failing. And the surrounding pagan peoples were stronger and more prosperous. And some, we learn, were being given positions of influence in Jewish society. And we also learned that at one stage the wealthy amongst these returned exiles were actually lending to the other exiles at higher rates and then selling them into slavery when they defaulted on their loans. And so the people didn't think it right that pagans should prosper while they languished. They didn't think it right that those who disobeyed God's law should be in positions of power and influence. And they didn't think it right that they weren't enjoying the prosperity that they'd expected to be theirs when they returned to the land. Prosperity which in their minds the prophets had led them to expect. Their expectations were not being met and they wanted God to act, to vindicate their interests on their timetable. And when God seemed not to be doing that, well, they started to draw conclusions about God based on their experience, and they started to complain about him to one another. Where is the God of justice? They said to one another. That has a modern ring to it, doesn't it? you probably heard people say, oh, I, I won't believe in God until... Oh, until he stops the suffering of children in the Rohingya refugee camps. Or, if I were God, I'd stop people like... Donald Trump and King John from coming to power, or I'd strike those child abusers dead. You've probably heard people use their experience of injustice or the continuing existence of injustice as a reason to not believe in the God of the Bible. People can't see justice being worked out. They don't see the justice they want to see. They don't see the punishment of the behaviours they want to see punished in the time frame in which they want to see it. And so they say, God can't be the God he says he is while these things are happening or unaddressed. The presence of evil in the world, they say, means God can't be both good and almighty as he claims. Where is the God of justice? Now, it's possible to set out a philosophical response that shows the coherence of the claim that God is both good and almighty with the existence of wrong in the world, and there's a place for that sometimes, but that is not what God does here in Malachi. God actually says he is going to do something better. God proclaims that he will give the lie to the suggestion that he somehow favours evil and is absent and unconcerned about justice, God says he will give the lie to that by committing himself to come and bring justice. And what he promises here, the New Testament says he is fulfilled, he is brought to pass in the coming of Jesus, whom in a couple of weeks we will remember as Emmanuel, God with us. And we will see that if we understand who Jesus is and what he has done, we will never think God is indifferent to justice, never less than perfectly just. But we will also see that both the promise and the fulfilment come with a warning that the coming of the God of justice is something we may not be ready for and may not welcome for all our complaining. I will send my messenger, who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. God's response is to say that he will give these complainers what they say they want. They ask, where is the God of justice? And God says, suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come into his temple. But he cautions them. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. But let's consider verse 1 more closely. There are two figures in verse 1, aren't there? The first is the one who comes before the Lord. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me, who comes to make sure people are ready for the coming of the Lord. Now later in this book Malachi will speak of Elijah the prophet being sent, chapter 4 verse 5. And so this messenger is a human prophetic figure sent to give God's people time to get ready and that is a great kindness. Because when the Lord comes he will bring a refining judgment and his coming will be sudden. There'll be no more time to get ready when he arrives. And secondly, there is in verse 1, one the Lord speaks of as the Lord you are seeking who will come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant whom you desire. Now this language looks to the coming of God himself. The Lord you are seeking. The Lord here is Adon. And it's different from the Hebrew word Yahweh, which is translated Lord, in the phrase, the Lord Almighty, at the end of the verse. But this word, Adon, is used elsewhere by the Lord of himself, the God of Israel. And in fact, this is a good word to use because it speaks of him as master, as owner and ruler, the one who can expect an accounting from his servants when he comes to what is his own. And the context reinforces that the Lord is speaking of his own coming. He is the Lord, remember, whom they seek. And they're asking, where is the God of justice? And he comes to his temple. The Lord whom you seek will come to his temple. And the temple in Jerusalem is the Lord's temple. This is the coming of God himself. And yet there's a sense in which this coming one is also distinguished From the Lord. He's called the messenger of the covenant, which can also mean the angel of the covenant. In Genesis, the angel of the Lord, the one, and you can read about it, who appears to Abraham and Jacob, is both identified with and distinguished from the Lord. This is Jacob speaking in Genesis 48. May the God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked faithfully, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys. The angel is identified with God. The messenger of the covenant is identified with God and yet distinguished from the Lord. He's not all, in a sense, the God there is. In fact, what we see in Genesis is that the angel of the covenant, the angel who delivered him, was the Lord active on earth to maintain the promise he'd made to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and bring it to fulfilment. What we see in Malachi is that the Lord who comes to his temple is one who is active to maintain the Lord's covenant with his people. So in response to their complaining, the Lord promises that he will come. But there's mystery still about the nature of his coming amongst them. But he warns that that coming may not bring the vindication those complaining about him seek. For he will be seeking and bringing about the purity of his people. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? for he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. His activity will be like somebody who purifies metals to remove the dross. The refiner was someone who took metals like silver or gold and heated them to very high temperatures to burn off the impurities. The launderer is someone who used soap, a kind of bleach or detergent, to remove spots or stains. God is saying. He will subject all to this refining, purifying activity when he comes. And why? It's because he is determined to have a pure, a spotless people who will worship the Lord acceptably. Verse 3, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord, as in days gone by, as in former years. The Lord is saying there will be no place for those who do evil, who defy his covenant amongst his people then. And he starts his refining work with this group, the Levites. They are the people whom we've already seen in Malachi, are failing in their work. They're not offering right sacrifices, not fearing the Lord. And where their work fails, because the Lord had given them the job of atoning for the sins of his people through their sacrifices, where their work fails, the people cannot offer right worship. They can't be the people God saved them to be. But because of the coming of the Lord, because of his purifying work, all this will change. They will bring offerings in righteousness. That is, the priests, the Levites, will now be right with the Lord, fearing him, keeping his commands, conforming their lives to the Lord's character and instruction. And in doing this, their offerings at the altar in the work God has entrusted to them will also be right conforming to God's intention and instruction. They'll no longer show contempt for God's name and altar, but like the true priest, they will fear him. How will this come about? Well, in Malachi, as we've already seen, sacrifice speaks of your attitude to God. They had contempt of God. They offered unworthy sacrifices. So to offer right sacrifices, it will be because God has now given them a right heart. They can come to offer sacrifices in righteousness because their hearts have been changed. Their hearts have been made right with God by his purifying judgment. And where the priests, the Levites, make right offerings, well, then the worship of the people of Judah and Jerusalem will also become acceptable to God as it was in the days of old, the days of Moses and David. Because of the purifying work of the Lord who comes, people will see that the claim all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord and he's pleased with them is a lie. They'll see that God will only have as his people those who do what is right in his eyes. That he's actually only pleased with those whose worship is worship in righteousness, in conformity to his holy law. And of course when this happens, when the Lord comes, people will no longer say where is the God of justice for he will exercise justice on those who break his law. The NIV says so I will come and put you on trial. The ESV has I will draw near to you in judgment. And that's a better translation here because the word translated trial or judgment is the exact same word that's translated justice in verse 17 and so God's saying to those who said where's the God of justice he is saying I will draw near to you for justice the justice you say you desire but what will happen then I'll be quick to testify against sorcerers adulterers and perjurers Against those who defraud labourers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice, but do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. The sins highlighted were sins prevalent amongst the community of Malachi's day and all involved breaking commands given in the law of Moses. There's false religion and sexual immorality. There are those who swear falsely and seek to deceive in court for their own advantage. But the bulk of the sin that God denounces here is what we might call economic or social sins, the sins of the respectable, wealthy, and the proudly exclusive. Laborers, widows, the fatherless, the foreigner, all were vulnerable because they did not have the resources to protect themselves from exploitation because they had no one to take up their case in the assembly. And so they were dependent on the fairness, the righteousness of those who had the power and the money. And it looks like the rich in Malachi, they were pursuing their own further enrichment at the expense of the poor, holding back their wages, taking away the help they were entitled to, expropriating their land, excluding foreigners from getting a fair hearing. Yet God in his law had expressly commanded the protection of all these groups. The law said foreigners were to have access to justice, to not be mistreated or oppressed. And God had said in the law that he would especially be an avenger of orphans and widows. Do not take advantage of the widow and the fatherless. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry and my anger will be aroused. Oh, and the law actually specified that labourers who were dependent to eat that day on what they earned that day were to be paid that day. Pay them their wages each day before the sunset because they're counting on it. And God here, remember in Malachi, warns that he will be quick to testify, that he will be a swift witness against this law-breaking. Unlike human justice... There'll be no escaping God's judgment because of an absence of reliable evidence because he's witness. He's seen all and seen through the justifications and excuses. And unlike human justice, there'll be no delay and no inaction. He'll not be reluctant to expose the sin. He'll bring judgment swiftly. And judgment will not involve just judgment on actions. It will involve judgment of the sinful heart. You see, these sins reveal what is at the heart of the people's failure. Do not fear me. They do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. That is, they don't think God is real. They don't think that God will keep his word. Or they think that the Lord can be bought off by the kind of shabby sacrifices and half-hearted worship we've already seen in Malachi. Those breaking his commands think that they can live as if they're a law to themselves, doing what benefits them, treating with contempt those made in the image of God because it means nothing to them, because God means nothing to them. Oh, yes, they were restrained in their treatment of the wealthy and their fellow citizens because they feared men, they feared their power and response, but they thought they could ride roughshod over those who only had God to protect them. In their eyes, God was of less account than a man with a good wallet and a good lawyer. But when the Lord comes, they will see how wrong they are. He will bring justice, true justice, swiftly, giving to each what they deserve. But that actually raises a problem, doesn't it? How will God both bring justice? and have a purified people. I mean, who who of us would not be accused by a witness who sees all, not condemned by a judge who is determined to give to each exactly what they deserve for breaking God's law, what they deserve for not fearing him, not honoring their creator with the trust and thanks and obedience he deserves. How can any survive that purifying judgment? I mean, that's the question God asks of us, doesn't he? Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? And the answer is none. I mean, that's the answer the prophets Ezekiel and Jeremiah are given. They didn't think that there would be any who survived that refining. Listen to Jeremiah, verse 29. But the refining goes on in vain. The wicked are not purged out. They're called rejected silver because the Lord has rejected them. It doesn't matter how much you heat the cauldron. The wickedness is so mixed in that it can't be removed without the loss of all. There is nothing that survives. And that's what Ezekiel says too and It's actually the answer of our hearts too, isn't it? If God himself, the holy God, who sees and knows all, were to draw near for judgment, if he were to witness against us, if he were to seek by his refining, to remove sin, our determination not to listen to God, to love ourselves above God from our hearts, what would be left? How can God both have a purified people whose worship is acceptable and also be the God of justice. And how can one who is both God and yet is distinguished from God come? Yet God promises both in Malachi. And how God can do it is learnt in the way God fulfils this promise. For the Gospel says God has fulfilled this promise God has come for judgment and salvation in the coming of Jesus. Hear how Mark's gospel begins. After it says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, son of Abraham, it says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. Malachi 3 verse 1. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. Isaiah 40, verse 3, all brought under the title of Isaiah in Mark because Isaiah is the greater prophet. What's he saying? Well, first he's making clear what Jesus himself made clear, as you heard in the Matthew reading, (laughs) that John the Baptist is the messenger who comes to prepare the way. But he's saying something more, isn't he? He's saying that Jesus is the Lord himself. He is the one for whom John is preparing that way. Jesus is God coming to his people to judge and to save, as was prophesied in both Malachi and Isaiah. And in Jesus' coming, we see what God proclaims in Malachi fulfilled. We see that the Lord is committed to justice. We see that the Lord will have a pure people who worship him acceptably. And we see again God's commitment, the Lord's commitment to come in judgment. You see, where is the God of justice is a question with an answer. The Bible's answer to that question is he is hanging on the cross. That's right. Where is the God of justice? He is hanging on the cross. You see, the God the people said they desired came to his people, Jesus God with us. But they could not abide his coming amongst them, could not abide his witness against their sin, especially their proud hypocrisy. And so they killed him. But in their rejection, we see God's commitment to his just law. When we see that Christ is dying there, as Isaiah says, to bear the sins of his people, we should never again doubt the Lord's commitment to his justice. You see, he will not have a people at the expense of his justice. He will not ignore sin. He will not pass over sin and leave it unpunished. Paul says that God sent Jesus into the world to be this atoning sacrifice, to demonstrate his righteousness, his justice, because before he had passed over sins, but no longer. The Lord, you see, will not be inconsistent and partial in judgment, overlooking the sins of those he likes and punishing those he doesn't like. That is, he won't be the God the complainers want, a God who shows partiality, you know, punishing some who do wrong. Oh, do the wrong they don't like and leaving others alone in their sin. No, he won't be like that. It's to vindicate the just sentence of his law on the disobedience of those he will save that he gives his son to die in their place. Look at the cross and what you see is a terrifying, unshakable, unwavering commitment to upholding the just judgement of God's law. A commitment of God revealed in the death of Jesus for our sins. And God will raise Jesus as he fully deserves life for his blameless life. God has raised Jesus. Raised him who has known so fully what it is to be human and experienced both temptation and human injustice, raised him to be the one with authority, to be the just judge of all, so that all will see the justice of the judgments Jesus gives. Oh, and through that death on the cross, Jesus brings into being a purified people, a new priesthood who will worship him acceptably, who will bring offerings in righteousness. That was the goal of his work on the cross, Hebrews 10, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That is, those who trust him have been made acceptable to God. Why? So that they can continually offer to God right sacrifices, the sacrifice of praise and doing good and sharing with others, so that they can be, in the words of 1 Peter, a holy priesthood. A purified people is the goal of Jesus' death and that's also the goal of his continuing work in our lives that we become what he has declared us to be in Christ and so we endure the refining fire of suffering so that the genuineness of our faith can be seen we endure and experience god's fatherly discipline so that we may hebrews 12:10 share in his holiness Yes, and God promises to work all things so that we'll be conformed to his Son, his Holy Son, who did the Father's will in all, he said and did. The coming of God in the Son of God, God with us, Jesus, shows God is committed to justice and shows that God will have a purified people without compromising his justice, fulfills the prophecy of Malachi. Oh, and yes, the coming of God in the Son of God proclaims and makes certain judgment on all wickedness. Jesus brought a discriminating judgment in his ministry. We see that in the parable of the sower. His word hardened as well as saved. It excluded from the kingdom the proud as well as included those who could humble themselves and repent. And Jesus prophesied that there will come a day when the righteous and the wicked will be eternally separated, a day that would reveal the judgment already being enacted in people's response to his gospel. There'll be that day when the Son of Man sends out his angels and they weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. Or again, in Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. They sat, then they sat down and collected the good fishing baskets, but threw the bad away. That is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Words we're uncomfortable with, but the words of our Lord Jesus. But just as there was grace, in sending a messenger before the coming of the Lord Jesus, in sending John, a messenger that allowed people to prepare themselves for that coming, so the Lord shows even more kindness. The scripture says he is patient. Jesus doesn't come immediately because God wants people to have time to hear of Jesus and respond to him. He doesn't want any to perish but everyone to come to repentance. Yet, more than the people of Malachi's day, we should know both that the Lord is just, never indifferent to wrong, and that judgment is certain. The coming of the Lord to his people has made it certain. The death of Jesus has made it certain. There will be no compromise in his justice. The resurrection of Jesus has made that day certain. And the teaching of Jesus tells us that day is certain. So stop wearying God. Stop using God's patience in enacting judgment as an excuse not to give him the honour and trust which is his due. Just because God has not acted according perhaps to your time frame, you know, when you think he should. And just because he has not targeted those particular injustices that most give you anguish, that does not mean that he is not committed to justice, to giving to his human creatures what their acts deserve. The Lord is more committed to his justice than you can imagine. His commitment has cost him the blood of his own. What does your talk of justice cost you? So be grateful for his patience. The patience of the God who sees and knows all, all that you have said and thought and done. Act before he comes as a swift witness. Honour his patience by getting ready for the day he tells you is certain. And that means that if you have never listened to Jesus and responded to him with faith and repentance, now's the time to start. Now's the time to find out about Jesus. Is he really God, come amongst us as the gospel claims? Is he the one entrusted with authority to judge? With authority to judge you? Is his death for your sin? And is it your only hope of being spared in a just judgment? Find out about Jesus. And if you're convicted that Jesus speaks the truth but have never turned back to him, do it now. Do it today. Confess what you know, that you've been wrong to ignore him, to not listen to him, to not trust him and follow him. And ask him for forgiveness and to make you one of his people forever. He'll do it because he lives forever to save those who call on him. And then talk to someone about what you've done to get help. But if you're a believer, you say, you sit there, you say, I believe Jesus is the son of God. I believe he's come to die for my sins. Oh yeah, I believe he's going to return. Well you should be so grateful for this death that we're about to celebrate by which Jesus has made you holy by enduring the refining fire of God's wrath against sin in your place. You should be grateful that you are in him by faith. But never think God will have amongst his people those who do not fear him who do not give themselves to the purity he desires. There is no place for complacency about holiness amongst God's people. Commit yourself to being a people of justice. Commit yourself to being a person of justice. You see, our God wants us to be as passionate about justice as he is. His people, remember, are to be a people who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So you ought to commit yourself to knowing his will. To knowing his will, not to learn right and wrong from the world around you, but to learn right and wrong from meditating on his good law and then practising it. Oh, and you ought to make sure this, that you heed it, that there's no sexual immorality amongst us, that there's no dishonesty amongst us. Oh, and especially that we are just in our economic dealings, whether it's paying your bills on time or knowing the conditions under which your clothes have been made, whether they're actually just. And the workers get a just return. And in our treatment of the vulnerable, we have to be just and generous, because God has been so generous to us. That's right, and so hopefully, Hopefully we don't employ people at less than award rates because of their visa status. Hopefully we never do that. Hopefully we don't exploit people's weakness and vulnerability to make a quick sale by deceiving them. God wants his people to be like himself. The Lord, who in Malachi promised to come, has come. We know him, we've seen his character, we've seen his commitment, and he will come again. And on that day, he will be a swift witness. Who can abide the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? Only those who are in Christ and only those who are being changed by Christ to be like Christ, it's one and the same group. Make sure you are one of them. Let's pray. Our gracious heavenly Father, write this word on our heart, we pray. Convict us that Jesus is the Lord. Come to his own people, God with us. Convict us that his death was for sin. And shows your determination to enact the just judgment of your law. And in your mercy convict us that there he bore our sin in his body on the tree. Convict us that in him we can find forgiveness and be made holy and stand before you. And knowing this we pray please transform us by your spirit. So we come to love the justice you love so much that you give your Son to uphold it. We ask this in his name. Amen.